Hey, everybody. It's Jackie Johnson, host of Natch Butte. We talk skincare, we talk makeup, we talk all things beauty, and my guest this week is Ariana Maddox. Hi. What do we talk about, Ariana? Oh, my gosh. We answer all of your questions. We do. We talk about how our dogs were in a Pharrell video together. We talk about... Um, exfoliation. Oh, we talk about exfoliation. We talk about uh, tanning, self-tanning. We talk about laser hair removal. We, we go there. We dive, do a deep dive in my makeup bag. We And Tom's. And Tom's. <laughs> and Tom's Sandoval's. So maybe check out Natribute this week and see what we're talking about. See you there. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T, T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I am Matt Dwyer. If you like my theme music there, that's a band called Les Blanks. Go to lesblanks.com, check out more of their music. Also, uh, if you haven't listened to the show before, it is just what the title there implies. I have a conversation with somebody, usually pretty goddamn interesting, and uh, hopefully we learn something, laugh a little, and grow as human beings. Uh, today I talked to Marion Bullock, and... She is from the Prison Birth Project, and uh, I think I, it sounded like I said Marion, but it's Marianne. I just uh, mumbled, because I have a slight headache today. Uh, I have a headache most days, because I drink bourbon, but <laughs> uh, but she works with the Prison Birth Project, and it's interesting, because uh, when I heard about this organization and how they help with uh, pregnant, I never thought about if a woman's pregnant, and then she ends up in jail, what that happens to her, the baby, the standards of living in a prison for a woman who's chock full of baby. It's uh, it's a heavy concept and a pretty complex one. So thankfully, Ms. Bullock uh, joins me and we discuss, we discuss the intricacies of this uh, situation. It's kind of heavy duty. This is my 80th episode, if you haven't noticed, and uh, I am very excited about that. That's, I don't know why the number 80 represents something um, fantastic to me. Maybe because it's a round number. I don't know. But uh, 80 of these I've done. I'm kind of proud. Uh, I've committed myself to the show, and uh, hopefully you have too. I don't know. Maybe this is your first-time listener. Um Oh man, it's the it's the holidays here in Los Angeles, which means it's a blustery, cold mid seventies. <laughs> really struggling through the winter here in Los Angeles. Uh, but man, I don't know. I, this is actually the first year I'm really excited about Christmas because uh, I live with my girlfriend and uh, we got a 
real tree and there's presents under it and uh I'm and we're just going to stay at home and probably cook and drink all day Christmas Eve Christmas Day I ain't getting out of my pajamas and I ain't going to hover in the sober too long quite frankly <laughs> the day is going to start off with uh, bloody marys and end with homemade eggnog but uh the one thing that doesn't change uh when you're happy about the holidays is you still notice that the world is everyone gets so weird the holidays like i've the taverns and the bars i've frequented and people just there's a weird unconscious sort of uncomfortableness or something and i can't put my finger on it but uh, people seem to get a little drunker a little more obnoxious a little bit more confrontational and maybe is that maybe that's the true spirit of the holidays i don't know i don't know but it it seems extra weird this year I got no other antidote besides that. Uh, Christmas, though, I used to I used to dread the concept of going home. I'd I was just I'd just pray for the flu, <laughs> pray for the flu and a snowstorm or some unholy act to keep the planes from leaving the ground. But now this year it'll be a beautiful Christmas in Glendale, California. I know you're all jealous of me. Uh, let's get on to this conversation with. Uh, Marianne Bullock of the Prison Birth Project. I hope you all have a safe and happy holidays. I think it would be best if we start off and you sort of explain what the project, uh, Prison Birth Project is, because so, you'll articulate it better than this dummy. Yeah, so um, the prison, we're an organization, the Prison Birth Project is an organization um, focused on reproductive justice that provides support, education, and advocacy with um, people at the intersection of the criminal justice system and parenthood. So um, that's sort of like the long, the short way of saying we do a lot of stuff. <laughs> Um, and, and most of the work that we do is guided by our membership. Um, and, you know, the, a lot of our members are locked up inside prisons and, and jails. So if, if you're in jail, you, you can become a member and that's, the, that's your biggest sort of support group is inside? I actually, when I was like just speaking, I was thinking I should know like what the breakdown is of our membership, but we have a huge base of support on the outside. Um, on any given day, there's like 25 volunteers, 25 to more, like 25 is sort of like our baseline of volunteers who are working to run the organization like on its day-to-day -day operating. Um, but our membership inside you know, we have more than 200 women a year who pass through our programming, um, anywhere from like six to 20 women per year that give birth within, um, inside with the, with the support of our programs. Um, so although our membership fluctuates, you know, throughout the year, um, you know, it's probably a pretty even split as to our support inside and out if we broke it down into numbers. I can't say for sure. That's probably a number that we should have. Um, 
but a lot of our membership is women inside in our programming or that have come through our programming and have remained in contact um, with us in other ways. Right. Yeah, it's it's a cause. Is when I first heard it, and maybe this is because I'm uh, I, I I was like I was like God. I hope this doesn't make me a typical dumb guy. But I was like, it's when I heard about your project, I was like, oh my God! Like, oh, that's a that's a potentially a huge problem that I never even you know like you just. I wonder how many people actually consider this being an issue in the world. You can say I'm a, a dumb lot guy. of. I think that a lot of people don't realize that this is an issue. I know that, you know, when we go and speak, even just in college classrooms or on panels or different things, um, you know, even people that are sort of in the social justice world and things like that, they're shocked to learn that there's people in prison that are giving birth um, and that are then separated from their children. So, you know, I... And then often when that comes out, then you we get the questions like, you know, do people get to stay with their kids? Is there nurseries in our jails? Like it becomes it becomes clear very quickly that issues of prison, although being highlighted more and more, you know, lately, um, issues of women in, in prison and especially mothers are more invisible than ever. And we don't you know, we drive by prisons and jails all the time. And lots of times people don't even know that they're prisons and jails that they're driving by. And, and more often than not, we don't think about, you know, the real connections unless you have someone locked up that you love or that you've been locked up yourself. You don't think about the real bonds that are broken um, and the separation when, when someone's locked up in those spaces in our communities. Yeah, and it seems that our uh, our political system has become... L- even more insensitive to uh, prison reform and various other issues that go on in the prison. It just seems more and more like throw them in there and forget about them. Yeah, like right now, um, you know, I think here in Massachusetts, a lot of people think of Massachusetts as like a liberal, progressive state. Um, But we're, you know, we when the facility that we worked in, the jail that we worked in opened uh, about five years ago now, it was a brand new $23 million facility. Um, And they had no specific programming for pregnant women that was operating inside there. Um, And now what we're up against now is we, you know, we always refer to our membership in terms of what we support. And our membership is constantly saying, you know, we, we need things like access to drug treatment and detox on demand. We need access to housing. That's like the number one thing we hear. We don't need more places that lock up our families um, and separate us from our children. And there's, you know, there's a bill right now in Massachusetts that would build a new jail that would be specifically for women who were pre-trial. So that's women that haven't even been convicted of a crime yet. They just can't make bail. Um, so, you know, it, it just feels completely bizarre <laughs> that in 2013 we're building new, like, 20-something million dollar facilities to lock up women, eight, which we know 85% of women who are incarcerated are mothers, you know, to, so, to separate people from their families, Um 
you know, just because they can't make like a $200 or a $500 bail while they wait. And, you know, it's, it's a really common thing that we have members that are inside for, you know, nine months with us. They give birth, their baby's a few months old. They get out because their charges were dropped when they finally went to court. It, what happens um, when if if they if that's the case too, and they and they give birth while they're in prison or in jail, and they're sort of in that in between? What happens to the child in that in that time? So the majority of our members, the child ends up going to a caregiver. So that's like a mother, a sister, an aunt. Um, so lost, you know, a handful of times more than I think the, you know, the rhetoric around father, fathering and parenting that happens, especially around incarcerated women. We have a lot of dads that, that do end up caregiving, um, for the child until the mom gets out. Um, but you know, a lot of the time, even if our member does have a support person who's giving, willing to take care of the child, that doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to get access to the child when she gets out because um, Massachusetts has adopted the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which means that, you know, if a woman is incarcerated for 15 months consecutively, um, technically the court can terminate her parental rights because the child can be seen as, you know, having been abandoned or not being cared for by that parent for that amount of time. And in Massachusetts, the average sentence of a woman um, doing state time is 18 months. So that means that, you know, the majority of the people that we work with can have their parental rights terminated just because the length of their sentence, not based on the charges that they've, um, you know, been accused of or been convicted of. Wow, that's really crazy. And- yeah, and some some states have adopted like discretionary um, legislature that allows for a judge to put a discretion on, but Massachusetts hasn't adopted anything like that. So even these like basic reform kind of stances that some places have been able to put into place, Massachusetts hasn't done that. So it's very likely that one of these uh, children could go into back into sort of the I, I don't. I, I forget what they, the the phrase is because they don't call it uh, orphanages. That's like an ugly word these days. But uh, they could go into this, back into sort of the system of... Uh, of, of right, the foster care system foster care. or here That's in Massachusetts it's called the Department of Children and Families. And from what I have, because uh, I've had past guests on my show who've went through the uh, foster uh, system and you know, read books and stuff, and it's usually... a in a lot of ways, a, a, a sort of a breeding ground for putting, uh, making, they're not, it's not the best system. And often these kids end up in trouble and sort of back into juvie hall, like juvenile and, and jail, right? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, um, you know, there's a, a coin that's been termed, a term that's been coined by civil by sociologists and others, you know, in activist circles have used it, the wounds to prison pipeline. Um, And so, right, which, you know, we, you know, first it was the school to prison pipeline, and now we're backing it up. And, you know, there's been other um, studies that I've also looked at, um, you know, like within certain school systems starting as early as like preschool, how that can be affected. But, um, yeah, I mean, there is evidence that shows that that 
more often than not, um, you know, there's a number of kids that are born in prison that end up going back to prison later in life and have been, you know, in between go through the foster care system. And I think that, you know, it's a symptom of a lot of these systems that aren't actually looking at the family as a holistic unit and what it, and how families are interacting and, the, and you know, what people need. Um, you know, in my, in my experience working with members to try to keep access to their kids, whether that's through open adoption um, or, or to, you know, retain custody of them, you know, a lot of what, a lot of the different, you know, plans that are imposed on, on moms and babies around, like, how often they get visitation and what kind of classes a mother might have to do to get her access to her child again. Um, you know, it's really super values-based and as much, like, cultural competency and things like that that there can be, um, you know, there's not this idea of understanding you know, the realities of what it, you know, what is accessible to folks when they're poor and low income um, and how, you know, how that shapes your life, you know, generationally, not just for um, the mom, but, you know, for the grandparents and for everyone who's going to be caring for or loving this child. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. Our, the prison system in general seems to be, it's moved so far away from reform and helping people in jails, like and like what we're talking about with the uh, children being born in prison are likely going to become in foster care back in prison. It's almost like the system just breeds more prisoners now or to keep them there, and it's that's quite alarming to me. Yeah, it definitely is alarming, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming out now about how, you know, and even it's amazing to me that, this conversation comes up inside a lot that like, you know, if the goal was to actually rehabilitate people, like it obviously, it obviously isn't the goal because then all of the folks that are working inside wouldn't have a job anymore, you know? And so like the, our members inside constantly say that, that like, you know, obviously that's not the goal it is to rehabilitate and reunite folks because then, you know, all of the people that they are, incarcerated, not, you know, with technically, but who are the corrections officers and the case workers and things like that. Um, and, you know, with the rise of private prisons, um, that's, you know, it's really alarming to know that, you know, literally corporations are making money off of the amount of people who are incarcerated um, and that there is, you know, that there is incentives in our society for people to be locked up now for, for longer, a lot longer amount of time. Yeah. It's uh we, in the state of California, Jerry Brown, just, uh, he, he vetoed a bill that would, uh, lower sentencing for drug possession, like small, minimal, like, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. cocaine and heroin, but then he, he okayed a bill to, uh, for more, corporatized prisons and it's just like oh that's an interesting combo that happened in the same way right, <laughs> right. they go hand in hand <laughs> yeah and it's you know it's like it's not looking at the problem and how to solve it because most people who are possessing drugs are you know may have an addiction problem and it's like let's right. not, let's not help that let's just ugh, it's really uh, it's upsetting <laughs> yeah you know and i know that 
for myself, I kind of, the first thing that I encountered in, in doing this work, um, you know, was a lot of judgment, especially in the birth community. Like there's, you know, we, ha- we sort of have like all these different base of supporters of people who are interested in the work that we do. And since we started out with um, offering doula support to women, so it's like physical and emotional support through pregnancy, um, childbirth and postpartum. And there's, a, you know, there's a large birth community, large and growing birth community now, especially on the West Coast. But, you know, Western Mass is sort of like the West Coast of the East Coast. Um, I, always, <laughs> I always joke that like, I lived on the West Coast for a little while and I moved back to Massachusetts and I couldn't go back to Boston. I had to, like, come out West because it's like you know, a little more, um, a little more open and free in their thinking. And so part, you know, it's a lot of folks that are having home births and that are see, understanding um, how transformative of an experience giving birth to a child can be. And a lot of that community employs doulas, you know, outside, you know, women that aren't going to prison and jail but have money to pay for extra support during their labor and, and birth. Um and so that was sort of our base of support, but it became really clear early on, you know, how disconnected um, it is and how different of a situation, um, how different of a situation it is when you're giving birth outside and inside. And so it's been really interesting to just see how these, you know, different groups, like the folks that are really interested in prison reform or prison abolition come to us on these policy ends of things and we can support policy in one, in one realm of it. And then in the other realm of our organizations, we're doing direct service work with people on the ground so that they can have positive experiences to propel them through, you know? And so when we encounter things like, you know, people our members who are, who are struggling with substance abuse issues, um, Lots of folks, especially in the birth community, would the first thing they would say is like, well, why don't they just go get treatment? Like, they're really being bad moms if they choose not to go get treatment. Um, and so I remember early on that was sort of, and I had struggled with that in my own family, like finding treatment for people that wasn't court mandated. Um, and in a lot of places in the United States, it's nearly impossible to find drug treatment for folks that isn't court mandated. And often when people are court mandated to treatment, like it's not the right time in their life for them to be going into treatment facilities. So it's sort of this double-edged sword um, where, you know, governors and different legislators keep passing things like, you know, mandatory drug sentencing. And those, you know, the folks who get caught aren't ready for drug treatment, but that's the only access they would ever have to any kind of drug treatment programming is when they're being court mandated to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's better to, to you know, to put a, a person who's an addict into prison isn't going to, and where uh, people also might, I don't think most people are aware of how abundant drugs are in prison. It's, uh, I've recently read a book about, uh, and this guy was like, I have an easier time getting drugs in prison than I did outside of prison. Yeah. And the same, you know, the same is true for any of the like, um, like halfway houses and things on the outside. Lots of times people want to go home to their families and that would actually be a, you know, an environment with less drugs for them. Um, but they're mandated to, to different types of halfway houses or lock treatment centers as part of their probation or parole conditions. Um, 
And in, I don't know about in California, but I know in Massachusetts, there's no, um, there's, you know, there's no drug treatment while you're inside. So if you go in and you're using heroin, um, you're put in isolation, you know, they call it medical isolation, but it's the whole, it's the same solitary confinement that you would go to if you got in a fight with someone or if you got in a fight with a correctional officer or whatever. Um, and you're put there until you, with, you know, you can take it and you withdraw and you're, you know, pretty symptom-free from all the, um, you know, all the physical withdrawal of, of heroin or Oxycontin or whatever it is that you're using. Um, and so unless you're on, on, unless you're pregnant in Massachusetts, if you're pregnant, you get kept on methadone or put on methadone or Suboxone when you come in. Um, and then you, then you go through the withdrawal process of that after you deliver. So that means that a, a lot of our members, a good number of our members are coming home, um, you know, 24 to 36 hours after delivering their child. And then, um, they're put in medical isolation while they withdraw off a of methadone or Suboxone. Is I can't imagine methadone is the best thing for a a uh, fetus. Is it? Is it? I mean, it can't be good, right? Well, I mean, there's a there's a lot of there's no National Advocates for Pregnant Women is a wonderful organization that's done a lot of evidence based research around drug use. Um, and, you know, there's sort of, it, it's sort of a, a mixed bag. You can find studies that say that, you know, some things are totally fine, and then you can, you can find studies that say, like, it's the worst thing you could possibly do. I think that there is consensus that, you know, if you're using heroin at, at, a, high, at a high dose, um, then going on methadone will lessen the risk of miscarriage, but that, you know, that research is not being done very often because it's so hard to do research on pregnant people. Um, and then, you know, like the ethical issues that arise when you're doing research on pregnant people that are using drugs and you're not offering them treatment. Um, so it's, it's really hard to know sort of our, you know, our standards of best practice say that obviously the, the choice is up to the mom. So that means that, you know, we've had clients that come in and say, you know, I don't, I don't want to be on methadone. And so I'm, I'm not going to take methadone and it's a fight to get it because, you know, the department of corrections doesn't want it on their hands that, you know, a woman miscarries inside and it could possibly seen at, be seen as like, you know, the care that they were providing or, or, you know, a number of other things. So what I think the general, our general rule of thumb is that we believe that like people should have reproductive choice in all capacities. And so that means that if they choose not to use methadone, that's what we support. Um, but I've known so many women who've had babies. Um, and if I hadn't had, you know, access to their medical information and working with them, I would never have known that they were, um, that they were, their babies had, you know, had methadone throughout their, their pregnancy. And you said too about the care. I mean, I'm assuming that most prisons are not equipped for proper, like prenatal care and uh, healthy food for 
I mean, he, I, I would, I've never been pregnant, but I'm, I'm imagining most people have to have a pretty healthy diet. And from what I understand, prison food is pretty god-awful. Yeah, so it really is. This is actually, like, one of our biggest issues. When we first started going in, we did a whole nutrition component. Um, you know, we had a whole component where we talked about, like, how to maximize SNAP benefits and food stamp and WIC um, and what kind of things you're, you know, growing a baby and your body needs for you while you're growing a baby, too, um, and especially post out of feed toddlers and yourself throughout, um, you know, on a, on a low-income budget. And a lot of that was, like, hands-on work that we were doing by bringing foods in to the jail. And then um, because of contraband issues, they, you know, I, I guess they were having issues with drugs being brought into the facility. That part of our programming was kind of mixed. And so for a while we were still do, doing the nutrition component. And at this point we do the nutrition component on the outside because it's it's just almost like offensive um, to try to talk about it in there, especially with our members that have longer sentences when they have no autonomy and control over the type of foods and um, that, they, that they're putting into their body. You know, the majority of the meat that the people that I work with eat um, is mostly soy product. It's not, it's like not actual meat um, and or it's like partially meat and partially soy product. The only like fresh vegetables and fruits that our members have access to are apples. Um, other than that, it's like canned green beans, canned corn. Um, you know, we had a, we did an activity where we had our pregnant members write down what colors the foods that they were eating were for a week. Um, and it was white, like that, like gray and white were the colors. And so it just became clear to us, like, we can't actually adequately teach nutrition inside here. Um, and there's, you know, there's pregnancy issues that are totally exasperated by, by eating these unhealthy diets inside. We see our clients who get out like three weeks or a month before they give birth. We work with a wonderful um, family services person inside who does everything in her control to get pregnant people out before they deliver, um, which we're really thankful for our allies that we have that work with us inside the jail. But we'll see right away, like women will have issues like edema, like swelling of the hands and feet and ankles and wrists. And as soon as they get out of jail, within three days, it goes down. Um, you know, all sorts of issues like, like constipation, which is already pretty bad. Usually when you're pregnant, it's severe um, for a lot of our clients inside because they don't have access to green vegetables and to, you know, whole whole fiber. Um, and so, you know, for the amount of money, like we constantly, these are the conversations we're constantly having inside where we're, you know, where we realize that the room that we sit in every day when we do our, our programming inside the jail, um, you know, that we're all really the experts that, <laughs> You know, we have a room full of people who've either been incarcerated, dealt with addiction and recovery issues, had family members incarcerated. Um, you know, it's really different for us to sit in a room and talk about what, how we could fix these issues that would work for all of us and our families than it is for legislators and higher-ups to, you know, come in and do their study maybe and then go home and to Boston, and, you know, which is 
two hours away from where we live and, and talk about how to fix our issues. And it, it, yeah, is it, do the politicians or do they, do people respond on that side of the issue or is, is it very, I just, cause I know with uh, jail guitar doors, it's hard to, once people hear prisoners or jail, they just, there's so many people just immediately shut off a good, it's, it's really strange. <laughs> it's like they don't want to think of these people as human beings. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that a lot of people do really respond. I think that what I've learned in the five years of doing this work is that the the way that our culture sees people who are in prison is not as people. We call people prisoners or inmates or by numbers or by statistics. Um, you know, we don't even call people people, which is just what they are. And so I think that the work that we do really just on face value humanizes folks. It's like you can't, you know, when you think of birth, that's like the most human experience of all, pretty much. You know, all of us like to think about our creation story and and hear our birth stories and, and think about where we come from at some point in our lives, but maybe not, you know, all the time. Um, and so I think that it kind of strikes a chord with people where it's sort of an inroad where we can say, you know, let's think about the fact that there's babies that are born in prison. Let's think about the fact that, no matter what, you know, this person who's pregnant inside did, her baby is looked at as a co-conspirator to her crime, you know, and is treated in such a way that, that they don't get to experience, you know, adequate nutrition and, and prenatal care often, um, that they don't get to experience a birth that's where their mom is free of restraint and able to hold them and look them in the, in the eyes, you know. I tell sort of when people are having a really hard time, um, like connecting to the humanness of it all. I, I had an experience, um, it was in my first year when we first started going into the jail and we sort of had no idea what we were doing. We like had this idea. It was going to be like this volunteer run organization. It would be really low time commitment. We just go in one once a week. And then we just realized like how gaping of a hole this, this work is to talk about motherhood inside with, you know, like all of myself and the co-founder Lisa, we both had experiences with the criminal system. I was incarcerated when I was 19 and Lisa had a family member who'd been incarcerated. Um, and so we realized pretty soon, like how unique it is to go inside and with those experiences and talk to people and not come at people as like some kind of educator or some kind of caseworker or do-gooder. Like we're really just there to sit in the realities of what people are experiencing and provide a space with each other to talk about it. Um, and, you know, it, I, I had a member who, you know, I think she was the third birth that I went to and she gave birth on a three day weekend. Um, and it was a Friday night, late Friday night. And they discharged her the next day on Saturday back to the, back to the jail. And I was holding this newborn baby that she was giving up for adoption um, and the nurse came in and handed me discharge papers and, and was like asking me where the car seat was. And I was like, Oh no, I'm not taking the baby. Like I'm just the doula. I was just waiting for her to like, you know, be transported back. I'm going to go meet her at the jail. Um, 
And she was like, oh, you know, the mom can't be discharged without the baby being discharged. Where is this baby even going? And it dawned on me that nobody had done the paperwork for this baby. So this baby that was like barely 30 hours old, that's just like staring up at a human face all of a sudden has nobody that's going to like hold it in its arms and do the like thing that you do with a newborn baby where, I don't know, do you have children? No, I don't. Okay. Well, it's like if, I mean, maybe this, I think this happens with people that you love that have babies too, but I know when I had my daughter, you just sort of spend the first four days or so just sort of staring at each other, you know, like all members of the family, you just sort of are sort of in awe that there's this new little life with so much potential that you created. And it really hit me that, um, you know, we're putting systems in place. All this mom wanted was to just like sit in that hospital room with that baby and, and look at him. Um, and I had a really great experience too, where like about a year ago now, a few years later, she, she just showed up at one of our events. I hadn't seen her since, since she left the jail and, um, she tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and was blown away to see this woman standing in front of me. And, um, I actually ran home to my house cause I had pictures of her birth and I hadn't been able to give them to her cause she was transported to a different facility so soon after her delivery. Um, but it was sort of one of those miraculous moments where I'd held so much sort of like sadness around this experience. It really made me think about bringing children into this world and, how we, you know, how systems mess with families and, and family creation. Um, and then I was able to see her a few years later, and she told me that, you know, she was doing great. The baby ended up in an, an open adoption with a family that she has a really good relationship with. Um, and so, you know, I think that those moments of, like, that are filled with so much humanity are the ones that when people don't really get it, I often end up sharing um with folks just because I know I went home and like just sort of was so heartbroken for, you know, for years I carried that with me that, that, that baby, like whatever happened to that baby, you know? Um, and so it was wonderful when I finally was able to kind of like cap it off with the, like, you know, she actually lives in my town. Now I run into her regularly. Um, we've had coffee at the coffee shop together. So, um, you know, I mean, it's the work that we do is is very human. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... and I think so many of those stories that we can relate to people when they don't understand the humanness. I think that where we lose folks is when you start when we start trying to talk about like, especially when we lose elected officials, um, is when we start actually trying to talk about you know restructuring where we put money. That's the hard piece. Hey, we're going to get back to the conversation with Marianne Bullock real quick, but um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you very much for listening to my show, and it means a great deal to me. It would mean a really big, huge, great deal if you could go to my page there at feralaudio.com, Conversations with Matt Dwyer page, and donate a little something. Uh, we don't make a lot of money doing podcasts. There's not a podcast. Uh, we're not like a bunch of millionaires. Uh, and it just helps us run the station, helps us... Put pay for the equipment and uh, research for some of these interviews I do. If you can't donate, I understand. It's the holidays. It's difficult times. But if you could do your holiday shopping on Amazon, go through my Amazon link there, which is next to my donate link, and you can buy Christmas things and 
nice things for yourself, and we get a kickback of that money, and it would be we'd be ever so grateful. Thank you. Uh, also, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore uh, Matt underscore Dwyer at Twitter there. And uh, if you get a chance, go to um, iTunes and rate my show, write a review. Uh, I know I've been saying this for a while. I'm gonna get made uh, get stickers made up. So if you take a screenshot and email me at conversations with Dwyer. Uh, Take a screenshot of your review there, and I will send them to you. I promise you they are coming. All right, back to the conversation. That story is, I mean, it's it's quite moving. (laughs) And it's also, it makes you think, like, that moment that the baby has with its mother in those few days or or hours even, you can't, I would imagine taking the child away and then putting it into some cold situation has has to have some kind of psychological repercussions. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of studies out there um, about, you know, specifically about eye contact um, with newborns and things like that. And I know that, you know, there's definitely research that has come out of, you know, like, back in the day when they were called orphanages um, and there was sort of, you know, rows of babies in, in cribs. I mean, we, because so many of our, that is the fear of so many of the, of our members inside is that their children are not being cared for and loved in the way that they want them to, or want to be caring for and loving their children that what we really rely on is that, you know, we know that our families and our members and our children are resilient. Um, And we know that so many of our members that have had these, you know, really heartbreaking and devastating and trying beginnings or middles um, of their children's lives are able to, to reunite or to not even to not reunite and live under the same roof, but to develop a relationship with each other that's really, really deep and meaningful and, and works for them. You know, not, not all people are in a place where they can, where they can parent and lots of people know that. And, and we give space for people to make that choice. And, and, you know, in that case, hopefully, you know, be the ones who decide this is what the best case scenario, I think for my child, um, and so, you know, I think the the flip side of the coin is that that ch- children and human beings are are so resilient um and and we hope that you know, when we offer people a space to be to transform and to be um to heal, uh we hope that people will then be able to go on and and harness that resiliency and and be in their families in ways that are really healing for for all of them. Does it seem like, because it seems like if a lot of people, or I worded that incorrectly, but having a child in a a lot of ways would even give people, uh, individuals, an incentive to want to reform more or get their sort of life back in order? I mean, is that, do you see a lot of that? Yeah, definitely. So there's been a lot of research. um, It's funny, we don't, we don't re- lean on all research, but we do lean on some of it. And so there's been research that's been done a- around addiction and recovery that says that one of the catalysts, um, you know, there's a, it's, a really, it's a really low percentage of people that, you know, stop using drugs and are able to stay not using drugs for a long period of time. You know, I think the, they call it like a relapse rate. The relapse rate is really high. Um, 
but there's some studies that are coming out that are showing that women who give birth and go into and stop using drugs and go into recovery and utilizing recovery services during pregnancy um, oftentimes have a way higher rate of of not relapsing and of staying off drugs um, because pregnancy and birth can be such a transformative moment. I know that for myself, you know, I wasn't incarcerated when I was pregnant or when I gave birth, but I had a lot of the, like, feeder issues um, that people like to use as for when I got pregnant for someone um, who could potentially go back to to jail or prison, and I did, you know, I didn't have a high school diploma, um, and giving birth for me was, it was such a supported experience and a transformative experience that I constantly feel like if I hadn't had a kid, there's no way I would be doing what I'm doing today. Um, it was such a catalyst moment for me in my life where it really made me think about, you know, I didn't grow up in an environment where you think about like five year plans and, um, you know, like setting goals. And now I'm, I'm at, you know, a, prestigious liberal women's liberal arts college now finishing my my bachelor degree at 30 and I'm realizing that so many young kids like these kids who are like 18 years old grew up in environments where their parents are talking them about to them about like goals and plans and you know like accounting and things and I'm like oh my god I did not have that experience and having a kid really made me think like okay, how, what do I need to do to make it so that, so that I, you know, I mean, really for me, the first step was like, what do I need to do to make it so that when my com- my kid comes home in fourth grade with fractions, I can do fractions homework with her. Um, and then I sort of went from there and thought like, you know, what do I need to do now so that my kid will think that like, you know, education is, is, has an intrinsic worth in, in her life. Um, because I, you know, I wasn't necessarily raised with with that ideal. Yeah, it's because as you're saying that, I was thinking the in my childhood, the only thing I heard about college from my dad was, "I'm not paying for it." <laughs> it was like, yeah. <laughs> there was no encouragement, or it wasn't like get a good education and this is going to lead to a better life and job. It was just like, "We ain't paying for it. Good luck." Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's like. You know, I I don't blame my parents at all for, you know, my dad actually had the same, I remember, in 10th grade coming home with, like, some, you know, crazy, like, it was Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which, like, I think has since went bankrupt. But, um, you know, my dad was like, yeah, right, like, you can maybe go to UMass Boston or, like, community college, Um, but there's no, you know, we can't pay, we can't afford anything like that. We can't afford college really was it the working class world that you grew up in yeah and it was definitely that mentality where like you become you know if you and even now my dad struggles with like I'm a history major you know and he's like what are you going to do with that like you should have stayed in nursing (laughs) (laughs) I just I'm laughing because it's just so my like my family is just like what we we don't do that kind of thing it's like yeah yeah you know and my dad like he's worked for the phone company his whole life and he's provided I mean you know I know I get my addiction to books from him so you know like learning was an important thing in my house in my house growing up but you know the idea of going to college and um you know, having education be worth something. Um, it, you know, it was not a working class ideal that was 
that was in my life at that point. That's an interesting, because my parents both read a great deal, but there was never, there was just such a weird blue collar thing of like, we can read and we could participate, but it's like, we can't go any further than this. Like, this is what we do. It's like a weird mentality. It's oddly fascinating to me. Yeah, it really, it, I had this moment at, um, at Thanksgiving this on Thursday, actually, where my cousin sort of like made fun of my like interest in thinking critically. Like, it was about, it's so trivial too. It was about thinking about whether or not, or not an artichoke was a fruit or a vegetable. And like this came up, my aunt was like, our artichokes, you know, my family's Sicilian, so our artichokes a fruit or a vegetable. And I was just sort of like out loud, critically thinking about whether or not an artichoke was a fruit or a vegetable. And my cousin made fun of me and was like, you know, oh, you go to the fancy school now. Like you think that you, you know, you, you're so smart. And I was just sort of like, actually, I was just like enjoying thinking critically about something. And like, maybe that's what liberal arts school taught me. But like, or like, you know, maybe did I really learn that from Smith college? I think that I've, I mean, I've always sort of been interested in plants, like, <laughs> yeah. but it was just so funny to have that, to like realize, you know, and I mean, of all people, like he was, grew, grew up in a working class family, but went on to get an MBA. Um, and, you know, I was, you know, he, you know, he, it was very clear when I said something about like, oh, you know, you know, you get, you can get an MBA and, and then, you know, I'm 30 getting my my bachelor's degree in it and it's, you know, you're going to cut me down for it. And he was like, Oh, it's not about getting, the, getting their degree. That's where you have it wrong. You know, you got to like death the person ahead of you in line. And I was just sort of like, Whoa, like that's, I mean, really for working class and poor people in college, sometimes it's like, like sometimes I think that that's where it goes wrong. Like I can watch, the girls around me, I'm at Smith College in Northampton, and they're cutthroat. Like, the competitiveness, the it's cutthroat. And I don't think that, you know, I know that as a working class person going into college later on in life, I didn't know how to, I still don't know how to engage in that. And I think that I'm lucky that I'm not there at 18 or 19 years old because I don't, I don't have to engage in the competitiveness. For me, it's more just about you know, okay, I got to get good grades. So when I go to grad school, eventually I can get a good, I can get a good financial aid package. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's so crazy how those ideals are shaped by our families. Um, kind of rule everything. And it's, it's no matter what it, um, I know it, it's always there somewhere because even in like, (laughs) I'll find myself in situations that are, you know, are, sometimes highfalutin or what and I'm like what are you doing here like it's just like yeah. how, how did you end up here like I'm like yeah somebody's gonna find it out and I'm gonna get kicked out <laughs> it's like, yeah I say all the time like my life at this point constantly feels like I'm walking into situations that I'm not supposed to be in you know like I for years when I walked into the jail like I felt like a criminal because the only other experiences that I had walking into a jail was in handcuffs. And so it's really different to walk into a jail and like trade my ID for a pass that says professional. <laughs> um, 
and you know, it depends on who I get what day. Like there's like, you know, if I get a younger corrections officer, I get a, I get a professional pass. If I get an older corrections officer, I'm just seen as a volunteer. Um, you know, and the thing it's, but the same thing happens at Smith college. I walk onto campus and, you know, there's all these theoretical conversations that happen about, you know, deviance in American society and about prisons and the number of people in prisons and, for a long, you know, this is my third year there, and I didn't really share my experiences um, until this year or even the work that I do because I just sort of felt like, you know, I was hiding out. I was an imposter in this in this situation. But, you know, like the same thing, we go to meetings all the time with people, and our membership has such valuable experience and knowledge. Um, and what we really are trying to work on is getting to a place where we feel like we do belong at the table and we do have a seat at the table with, you know, all of these lawyers and politicians and professional people who are making decisions about about other people's lives and oftentimes their lives that they've never even been able to relate to on a day-to-day basis. And now I would like to – I'm curious because uh, you uh, – and you don't have to go into at all why you – why you were in jail, but I'm curious about the process of your life of, uh, what was, was it the having a child or was the turn in your life before that of, uh, sort of getting on a different path? Um, well, I think that, I don't know if you can, it was definitely, ha- it was definitely having a child that was sort of the, the like motivation that, you know, you sort of like realize your own mortality almost when you have a kid, you're like, Whoa, I can like make a life. And then I'm responsible for this life in a way that like, I'm not only responsible for keeping myself like safe anymore. You think about safety on a whole nother level. Um, but I, you know, when I went to jail, I was there for, you know, a, a very short amount of time. And, but everyone that I was there with was a parent and everyone that I was there with was there because of poverty. Um, and I sort of walked out, I'd done, you know, some, some organizing in the past and had been, you know, somewhat aware of prison issues more around like political prisoners and things like that. But I'd never actually thought about how, how all-encompassing the system of incarceration is and how historically it relates back back so far, um, you know, even to slavery, but, you know, then obviously to Jim Crow. Um, And I I remember when I walked out of jail that day, I was just sort of like, I can never look at a jail or a prison the same way ever again. And I had said to myself, like, I want to do something working in jails and prisons because so many people are just left behind, you know, and that's what a lot of the organizing work that happens around, you know, reform and abolition and decarceration doesn't include people inside jails and prisons. It's sort of been this, like, you know, the wall is so thick that even radical organizers often don't know how to break through that barrier. Um, And then it was, I had my daughter, And she was like 10 months old and I picked up a newspaper and it said the new women's facility is opening. Um, And there was a picture of women shackled ankle to ankle being like brought into the facility. And 
I, you know, and there was like a statistic in there that said 85% of women in prisons are mothers. And that was sort of like the moment where I was like, whoa, you know, like people just like me are leaving their 10 month old babies. And, you know, they're, you know, at that point I was like exclusively breastfeeding my daughter. They're like breaking up a nursing relationship. Um, you know, they're going in there pregnant, they're giving birth, they're going through the experience that I just had that was so transformative and powerful to me that, and they're doing that, you know, in shackles or in restraints and with nobody but a corrections officer and a medical provider who may or may not be treating them as a human in the room. And so that was really the moment when I was like, this is what I can do. Um, you know, I can go and connect with people around motherhood and around what it means to try to parent, um, with these experiences. And so, you know, it was just sort of like a a perfect, a perfect storm of, of those three years of my life, my life where, um, you know, it all just fell into place and, and, and it happened. We, you know, we're lucky enough. I asked someone how to get in. I asked Tina Reynolds, who runs an organization in New York called Worth, how to get into a prison to do work. I was like, I have no high school diploma. You know, I have no letters behind my name. What, you know, how do I get in there? And she said, you know, you have to know somebody who knows somebody. And then she said, and you should go get your GED. (laughs) And so I found someone who knew someone And a few days later, we got a call, and they asked us to come in and present our program, which at that point was just sort of like this idea. I didn't know anything about programming or, you know, I'd worked at, like, cafes and nannying and stuff. (laughs) I didn't didn't have any, like, programmatic experience or, um, once again, I was walking into a situation that I didn't feel like I was, like, equipped or, you know, I felt like I was sort of like an imposter in but they accepted our programming and we've had a relationship now for five years um, where we've just sort of figured out how to do this work. None of us were fundraisers. None of us had any nonprofit experience in the past. Um, And, you know, none of our staff do have any of that experience except for what we've learned in the past years from different mentors and other organizations and sort of like what feels right for us and our values of, how we can do this work. So, um, yeah. And I think that everyone, I know that everyone else sort of has a story like that too, that we've all come to this work in these really intricate ways. And it's really hard work to do. Um, but it's also really rewarding. And so, um, you know, it, it goes both ways. It's, it's really great. And I I think what you're doing is amazing and it's, uh... It's just even within this last hour of, or not even talking to you, I just, it's, it's been emotional, but it's been like really uh, eye-opening and uh, frankly inspiring as well. It's, it's pretty, it's a great thing that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. I want to ask one thing, because I think people also have a misconception of what prison life is, and I think especially... You hear a lot about male prisons, and I recently read the book Mother California about a, a lifer's. It's like his memoir, and it's, I mean, ma- male prison is probably way worse than people perceive it to be. 
and the guy even says it. He's like, it's not like Hollywood, the things you see in movies. He's like, it's worse. And yeah. Do are female prisons equally as? Is it as hostile of of an environment, or is it? Is it better? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think that I. I mean, I think that prison in general, prisons are a hostile environment. Um, you know, the reality is that our society puts people in cages, and that is really scary and really hostile, and you know, really just. Um, you know, it's like a really heavy thing that 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 happens to so many people, so many people at this point in time. Um, and I know, you know, women's prisons are no different. And I think that, like, you know, there's this orange is the new black that just came out, and there's all of these that these this view into women's prisons that we've never had before. And I think that that's really great because it's bringing to light. Um, some of these issues, but I also think that orange is the new black is like this is from a particular viewpoint. Um, it's from a viewpoint of a you know middle upper class white woman who went to Smith College, um, and you know who had had very much so like made it made a choice. Um, you know, I have a seven year old, so we're often talking. You know, there's sort of this idea that people in prison are scary and bad, and we're often talking about choices and how, like, it's not that people in prison are scary and bad. People lots of times make choices, and lots of times there's a larger system that makes choices for them. Um, but, yeah, women, you know, the feeling, I, you know, I, I said this, I was on a panel a couple of weeks ago with a great group of women, um, Andrea James, who just wrote a wonderful book called Opera Bunkies Unite, Um and Tina Reynolds of Worth and Lois Ahrens who runs the Real Cost of Prisons Project and Vicki Law who made who wrote um Women in Resistance, um Resistance Behind Bars, I think is the name of her book. But, you know, I just sort of someone asked a question about like what you know, about being in prison and it you know, I, I, I say like I was in I was in jail for a really short amount of time, but that feeling of being put in handcuffs and being put in a room with a metal door shut and, like, my my hands locked to a metal pole and just being locked in a room alone for, like, I don't even know how long. There's no clocks in prison. Like, that's, like, a thing that will stay with me forever whenever I'm in a room without a clock, which schools often are the place where I notice that, that there's no clock in the room with me. Um, you know, like, those feelings are, are what encompasses my experience, but people experience horrible things, you know, isolation, segregation, secure housing units, these things are all in women's prisons, just like they're in men's prisons. Um, and, you know, the hor like just the complete and utter degradation and, and lack of humanity, the fact that, um, you know, I just wrote a long paper, a seminar paper for, for school about Susan Rosenberg, who was put in a secure housing unit in the in the 80s. And she sort of says at one point um, in one of her letters that I was going through in the, in the archives, she says that, you know, a, a physician's assistant and a corrections officer held her down while they cavity searched her. And she, you know, and she, they weren't, she says they weren't searching for anything. They were brutalizing me. 
And I, it was sort of like the first time where I realized, like, I'd held on to all these experiences of being, of, of going through that alone, of going through being cavity searched and the women that I work with going through those experiences. And the reality is, like, they're not searching for anything. Like, it's about, it's about being put in your place so that you'll then cooperate moving forward. Um, and I think that the flip side of it is that a lot of these, a lot of the, like, Hollywood and things that are portrayed don't show the communities that are created inside and, like, the small little pieces of resistance that happen specifically between women while they're locked up um, that prisons work really hard to not allow, and especially the media works to not show. You know, we hear all of these things about gang units and people have to be separated and they have to be isolated because of this and that, and, you know, more often than not what we experience is We'll have women that are coming for a specific charge that, you know, is unsavory and taboo, and they'll be put in isolation for that and not allowed to come to programming. And all the other moms in our group are saying, we know that this person's here. We saw this on the news that she did this thing. She should be in this group. She needs to talk about what she just went through with her kids and da 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 And it's, you know, that that community can be built and inside such repressive conditions um, is a really amazing thing. And I feel really lucky that, like, you know, two hours out of my week every week I get to go sit with women um, and create that community with them. But, yeah, women's prisons are horrible. I mean, prisons are horrible and, and dehumanizing, and there's no reason to treat people the way that we treat people and to have such punitive measures in place on people other than to inflict trauma. Um, that's all that it does. Yes, and that's not gonna, that's not helping the situation at all. It's just breeding, it's just making it worse. Right, exactly. Now, is, uh, just to, to wrap it up, um, where may it, 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 it this, the uh, Prison Birth Project is solely in Massachusetts. It's not, uh, nationwide, is it? Yeah, no, we're just in Massachusetts. Um, we're working to create a network of other organizations that are doing similar work across the country. So we're starting like a national network of, of um, doula projects. Um, but we're, we're just in Massachusetts right now, and we do have dreams of um, replicating our model in other places in the future um, and creating training so that folks in other areas of the country can replicate our model as well. Um, we have a website that people can go to, theprisonbirthproject.org. Um, and we also have a Facebook page, which is also the Prison Birth Project. And you can see sort of like a short video of what we do and writing. We put writing on, on our website of our members. Um, and, yeah, coming up on the 12th of this month, it's a thing called Valley Gives Day, and we're trying to get, um, you know, a bunch of new folks to donate even small amounts of money to us just to um, help us reach our goal so that we can do things in the future like replicate our programming and expand it. Are there similar um, organizations in the country or are you sort of the groundbreakers? No, we're, we're unique. We're definitely unique. We do things differently. We're, there's about four um, dual programs across the country um, there's one in Washington State called the Birth Attendance, the Prison Doula Project. There's one in San Francisco. Um, 
There's one in New York, I think, and then there's one in Minnesota. Um, but every, we all do things a little bit differently, and so we're sort of the we're we're the program that's really focused on you know doing direct or doing direct service work as well as you know hand in hand seeing that as organizing work. Um, right now, we're about to kick off an anti shackling campaign, so that would pass legislation in Massachusetts and make it the 19th state to outlaw shackling of women, pregnant women in labor. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're, we're definitely unique in what we do and other organizations do what the work that they do uniquely and differently as well. But we're trying to get to a point where we can sort of share best practices and say like, and just sort of say like, we're all aligned in values. You know, I know that we just sent a survey out um, about two weeks ago, but I know that the organization in Washington state, I have some good friends who started that organization. Um, and we're very similarly aligned as a reproductive justice model of care, um, you know, providing full spectrum pregnancy care to people while they're inside. And I think now that they run a program inside for mothers that isn't specifically for pregnant women, just like we do. Um, and we have an outside component too. So when our members get out, we connect with them on the outside and we try to build leadership inside so that when they get out, they can take on leadership roles in the organizations. Um, and that goes a long way, you know, for someone to be able to say that they did administrative and fundraising work with a nonprofit when they go to apply for a job, um, you know, that's really meaningful. That's great. Well, I, I want to thank you very much for your time. It was uh, really uh, uh it was great for me. <laughs> it was very informative. <laughs> I'm sorry. Great for me just sounded really dopey. <laughs> so I was laughing at my own dopey. I, I have three hours of sleep in me, so uh, I hope my brain was not uh, all, was was functioning for you. Oh, no, it was wonderful. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. We're always so happy to talk with folks who want to learn more about what we do and, um, and think about these things because, you know, unless – like I said earlier, unless you have someone locked up or you've been locked up yourself, sometimes these things don't don't cross your path very often. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Um, I appreciate you listening. Check around Feral Audio. Check out some of the other sites. I mean, shows. Enjoy those. And uh, as I said at the top of the show, have a happy, happy holiday. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.